Well, folks, see you, Dave's here. It's Jerry Adams here again on a beautiful sunny day with an afternoon of hurling and football and basking in the afterglow of yesterday's amazing result. And best wishes, first of all, and congratulations to First Minister designate Michelle O'Neill. One presumes that the Sinn Féin team will assemble at the Stormont Assembly on Monday morning and will then proceed to honour the wonderful mandate that they have been given. So well done to everybody, the entire team, all those uh, private people, people in the background, people who fold the leaflets and deliver the leaflets and people who guide us through these uh, tumultuous times. So gorgeous and I want to just dedicate this little podcast to all the candidates from all the parties and none, as well as their families and, as I've said, all those other valiant souls who work hard on their behalf. And I, I, I thought it would be a, a good time to look at an issue which I actually have uh, written about before over the last 20 years or so, and I have amended it to make it uh, current. So as well as dedicating this to all the candidates, I I want to especially have a special thought for the majority of candidates who won't and who didn't get elected. Like, for example, in West Belfast, there were 17 candidates battling for five seats and 17 into five, that that doesn't go. So think of them as you digest the outcomes and good luck to them all. Uh, Especially, as I've said in my opening remarks, multiple thanks to the Sinn Féin candidates. And it's a great honour to represent Sinn Féin in any capacity and a huge privilege to seek a mandate from your peers for our historic Republican mission. And the people had their day. The people have spoken. And interestingly, in the run-in to the election, and this has become an integral part of every election campaign, opinion polls dominated a lot of the coverage. And many newspaper and broadcast outlets basically commission polls and try to second-guess the electorate. And then their columnists or their pundits spend a huge amount of time analysing the polls they have just commissioned. And so do many candidates and their supporters. And this can be very, very stressful. So every candidate and everyone else should be mindful of the particular and peculiar Stresses and strains that come with being a candidate, particularly now that all the excitement has faded and they're coming to terms with what has happened. And there's a, a strange ailment. It's called candidate-itis. And it begins with the candidate coming to believe with the certainty known only to the prophets of old that they're going to win. And this syndrome is capable of moving even the most rational 
aspirant or shy wallflower into a state of extreme self-belief. It strikes without warning, it's no respecter of gender and can infect the lowly municipal hopeful, the aspiring parliamentarian, as well as the lofty presidential wannabe. The late screaming Lord Sutcher, his Irish equivalent who stand just for the crack, can fall foul of candidatitis as much as the most committed and earnest political activists. Now, I believe this is due to two factors. First of all, most people standing for election see little point in telling the voters they're not going to win. That wouldn't make sense. Of course not. So they say they're going to win. And that's when candidate-itis starts. As uh, we're going to win is repeated time and time again, it starts to have a hypnotic, it's hard to say that, a hypnotic effect on the person intoning the mantra. And by this time, my friends, it's too late. That brings me to the second factor. Most people encourage candidate-itis. Unintentionally, perhaps. You know, not even the candidate's best friend will say, hold on, you haven't a chance. Except for the media, but no candidate believes the media. And most candidates are never interviewed by the media anyway. So a victim of candidate-itis will take sucker from any friendly word from any punter. Even a good luck takes on a new meaning. And I won't forget you as akin to a full-blooded endorsement. So are we the pity sufferers of this ailment? Probably not. But we should be kind to them. They are mostly consenting adults, although some parties occasionally run conscripts. In the main, these are staunch party people who are persuaded to run by more sinister elements who play on their loyalty and commitment. And in some cases, these reluctant candidates, these conscripts, run on the understanding that they're not going to get elected. Their intervention, they are told, is to stop the vote going elsewhere or to maintain the party's representative share of the vote. And in some cases this works. But in other cases, despite everything, our reluctant hero or heroine actually gets elected. A friend of mine was condemned to years on Belfast City Council years ago when his election campaign went horribly wrong and he topped the poll. And that's another problem in elections based on proportional representation. Topping the poll is a must for some candidates, but in PR elections, such ambition creates a headache for party managers. If the aim is to get a panel of party representatives elected, they all have to come in fairly evenly. And this requires meticulous negotiations to carve up constituencies, and then implementing such arrangements make the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement look easy. It means only placing posters and distributing leaflets in specified areas with clear instructions to the electorate on how we would like them to vote. In some elections, I've noticed that some candidates, now not Sinn Féin candidates, they put up posters in their colleagues' territory. And that's not a good sign. It requires an inordinate amount of discipline on the candidate's behalf not to fall into this trap. Many do, some don't. But some get really sneaky, particularly as the day of reckoning comes closer. Panic attacks and allergies to losing can lead to some sufferers poaching a colleague's vote. And this is a very painful condition 
which leads to serious outbreaks of nastiness and internal reprisals and recrimination if detected before polling day. It usually cannot be treated and it will have long-term effects. So, dear reader, dear listeners, all of this is by way of lifting the veil on these usually unreported problems, which in fact are election contests. Politicians are a much maligned species, in some cases not without cause. But the next time you look at a poster or get a leaflet through the letterbox or are confronted by a wild-eyed candidate at your door, occasionally accompanied by a posse of cameras, then take a more tolerant and benign view of the sometimes strange behaviour of these citizens who contest elections. Love them or hate them, they usually are the people that we deserve. We usually get the politicians that we deserve. Now granted this might not always extend to governments, especially in the South given the coalitions which came together and come together there in blatant contradiction of all election promises or commitments. This is caused by the lust of power, the lust for power. And so too with the refusal to accept the outcome of this assembly election unless it returns a unionist first minister. This condition is probably the most serious ailment affecting our political system at this time. And it could be terminal. And it will be a challenge for those returned as MLS. Before they get to that point, if ever they do, this exclusive insight which I'm giving you shows that candidates suffer many torments. And I don't have the time to document them all. So don't ignore the visages on the multitude of posters which defiled lampposts and telegraph poles during this election and Sometimes in the past, it used to be for years afterwards. Think of the torment that the poor candidate is suffering. When you're accosted by a pamphlet-waving candidate as you shop in the supermarket or collect your children at school or are minding your own business as you walk down the main street, try to see beyond the brush exterior. If they get carried away with themselves in the course of the election campaign, as many did, it's not really their fault. Big boys and big girls make them do it. Most candidates are decent, civic-minded citizens. It's a pity some have awful politics. So your votes should not encourage them. They will have difficulty enough dealing with defeat as well as the outworking of candidate-itis. And many will be waking up to that prospect on this bright, sunny Sunday but they'd recover eventually. If they get elected, they or me or we may never recover. Thankfully, at least in West Belfast, we avoided that. Four out of five ain't bad. And then just to finish up, just reading bits and pieces of what is happening in former British colonies and what I like, like to pronounce as the Caribbean or the Caribbean. And the, the legacy of empire, of colonialism, of slavery, for many people there is still a matter of the present. It's not, it's not an issue for the past. And last November, 
Barbados formally removed Queen Elizabeth II as the head of state. And since then, the British government have sent two groups of British royals as part of a charm offensive to the region in an effort to solidify waning British influence. But these tours had the opposite effect. In March, the Cambridges visited Belize, Jamaica and the Bahamas. The first official engagement in Belize was cancelled after local people organised protests about a land dispute involving a charity of which William is a patron. In Jamaica, the issue of slavery and profits which the British monarchy accrued from that despicable practice generated more negative publicity and protests. The royals offered no apology and made no reference to the role of the British monarchy in transporting slaves from Africa to that region. The local media recalled that when enslaved Africans arrived in the Caribbean, the slave ships were owned by the Royal African Company and the slaves were branded with the initials DV, Duke of York, their owner. Imagine branding human beings like that. More recently, the Wessexes spent six days visiting that uh, area <coughs> and went from St. Lucia and St. Vincent and other islands there. But the refusal of success of London governments to properly address the issue of reparations arising from slavery or to acknowledge and apologise for it has added fuel to the increasing demand for independence. The chair of Jamaica's National Commission on Reparations and the chair of the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, Verena Shepard said, The move towards republicanism is grounded in the belief that it's time for formerly colonised nations to really live their independence and claim self-determination and not to be under a monarchy. So instead of cementing Britain's influence over the region, the royal visits have helped galvanise a renewed interest in and a demand for an end to colonisation, for reparations and self-determination for the Caribbean nations. The empire in which the sun never set is reaching its end stage. Part of that is playing out in the Caribbean. Part of it's also playing out in Scotland and Wales. And, thanks be to God, in our own place. So, let's go with uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your rights. Amor, Orav, Gullier, Gunyuri and Ta, Lipsha. Goramagov.